We pray, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts this morning be pleasing in your sight. Uh, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, there is nothing worse than getting your hopes up only to have them crushed. As Atlanta sports fans, I don't think I really need to even say anything else, right? But one example would be sports. Say maybe your team goes on this incredible run, they make it all the way to the playoffs, let's say they even make it to the Super Bowl, let's say even they're leading by a significant margin, and then Tom Brady, right? And what do the fans say? We shouldn't have gotten our hopes up. We should have known better. Uh, but the same thing happens also to a couple who are trying to buy a house. They scroll through a hundred different listings on Zillow, they finally find you know, the perfect house. This is like their dream home. It's got everything they want, it is in the neighborhood that they want, and like a miracle from the Lord, it even fits into their price range. And so they put in an offer, and it's accepted. So then all weekend, they're just texting pictures of this awesome, perfect house to their family and friends, and then on Monday, the news comes that the buyer of their old house had his financing fall through, so now they have to scramble to find another buyer, and it doesn't happen in time, and it pops back onto the market, and someone swoops in with an all-cash offer and takes their house away. And so then what do they say as they're sitting in their regular current house that they were hoping to move on from? They say, we shouldn't have gotten our hopes up. Right? It happens to someone who is in a long-term relationship. They get their hopes up about that person and shouldn't, shouldn't got my hopes up. Right? It happens to kids who think they, think they knew what they're getting for Christmas. Didn't get it. Shouldn't have gotten my hopes up. It happens to you when you apply for your dream job and then you get into it and you get into like the second round of interviews and then you're like a finalist for that job and then they don't call you back. I shouldn't have gotten my hopes up. Right, there's nothing worse than getting your hopes up only to have them crushed. I think that is, well, I know that that is what Jesus' disciples felt like on Easter weekend because they had gotten their hopes way up. <laughs> they had gotten to the point where they actually believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Jewish Messiah. He was the Savior, the Son of God, who's going to come not only save the Jewish people, but, but gather all nations on earth to himself. And, and they had left their homes for Jesus. They had left their jobs for Jesus. They were all in. But then Jesus got arrested and crucified, and he died. And when Jesus died, they felt like all their hopes died with him. On Sunday morning then, when the news came of his empty grave, that didn't reassure them one bit. Not at first. It just pushed them even deeper into despair. Now his body's gone, right? Now someone stole his body. We shouldn't have gotten our hopes up. So this is the timeline. It's Friday, uh, Friday night of, of Passover weekend. On the big Passover day, Jesus is crucified on the cross. And he's buried. Then on Saturday, everybody rests because it's the Sabbath day. And then on Sunday, everybody went back home. The festival was over. Like 80% of the people in Jerusalem were not actually from there. They were just there for the festival. So everybody went back home. And this is where we meet the two disciples in our gospel reading today. They're, they're going back home. They're on the road back to a little village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. 
Maybe that village was their home. Uh, I think more likely that was stop number one on their road trip back home. But whatever the case may be, you can picture their mood on Easter Sunday afternoon as they're walking along the road, talking with each other about everything that's happened. Like, they must have been feeling so defeated, so heartbroken, so crushed, certainly not in the mood for company. But company is exactly what they got because a road trip in first century AD was very different from a road trip today. Back in those days, you did not get to sit in your own climate-controlled little box and argue with your siblings about what music you want to listen to. Uh, back in those days, you didn't get to put on your headphones and peacefully gaze out the window and watch other climate-controlled boxes whizzing by you on the highway and wonder where those people might be going. Uh, back in those days, you didn't get to peacefully drift off to sleep and then violently whiplash yourself back awake because sleeping in the car is the worst. You didn't get to do any of that because in those days, of course, they didn't have cars and road trips consisted primarily of walking 15 to 20 miles in a day. So as you walked and walked all day long, you would cross paths with all different kinds of people. You could bump into somebody at 9 a.m. on your road trip. They're a total stranger. And by the end of the day, they're not a stranger anymore because you've been talking to them for you know, 10 straight hours until you got to your destination. So this is what happens on this Sunday afternoon of, of Easter weekend. As these two heartbroken disciples are walking along, they get joined by an oddly curious and chatty stranger. And right away, the gospel writer Luke tips us off about who this is. Uh, it's, it's Jesus. He says, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? You know, what are you guys talking about? And they stood still with their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened there these last few days? Like, have you been living under a rock? And the stranger says, what things have been happening? And Cleopas, well, both of them said, the things about Jesus of Nazareth. Have you not, how have you seriously not heard about Jesus of Nazareth? Three years ago, he popped up out of nowhere claiming to be the promised Messiah. And nobody believed him at first because there's been false messiahs in the past. But pretty soon we recognized he was different. His teaching, like he taught as one who had authority, not like the teachers of the law. And his miracles, he made the blind to see, he made the lame to walk. He did it over and over again, like hundreds of times. For Pete's sake, he, he fed 5,000 people out of one kid's lunchbox. You can't fake this stuff. We knew he came from God. And so then one week ago on Palm Sunday, he came into the city and people are waving palms and cheering and saying, Hosanna, Lord, save us. And we didn't know how he was going to do it, but we knew that he was going to. He was going to save us because he was clearly the one. And then the chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Can you feel the defeat in, in that sentence? Like, we had hoped. Now hope is gone. They're thinking to themselves, we shouldn't have gotten our hopes up. 
And then they shared this one tiny insignificant detail, so insignificant they almost forget to mention it. They said, well, one other thing did happen. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb this morning. They didn't find his body. They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. So some of our companions went and checked it out. They went to the tomb and they found it was open, but they didn't see Jesus. And hope is still gone. So I think this whole little dialogue, but especially that last piece about how they're treating the testimony of the women and the angels, I think this gives us such a fascinating glimpse into the mind of the disciples on Easter morning. When Jesus' grave was found to be empty, when the women claimed they had seen these angels saying he was alive, the disciples were not celebrating. They were frustrated and angry. Not only had their hopes been dashed, but now they had to, they didn't even have closure on it. Now they had to deal with whatever this weird prank was. Like, obviously, someone had stolen Jesus' body. Is it one of Jesus' enemies? Why would they do that? Is it, is it somebody else? What is their problem? It's hard enough to lose a person you love. It's hard enough to lose the person who you believe to be the son of God, let alone have some prankster mess with their body, and now you just have to keep talking about it, and it's all unsettled in your mind. But their frustration about this is really important, and this is why. There's a common mindset today in our world, and it, it kind of sounds like this. It says, in the ancient world, you could get people to believe anything, right? In the ancient world, everyone was so ultra-religious. They were all superstitious. They, they explained everything with, you know, ghosts and spirits and demons and gods because they didn't really have, they hadn't learned how to use a scientific method, right? So they just explained everything with all this superstitious stuff. In the ancient world, you could convince people of anything. But the disciples' reaction on Easter shows that this is not true. People in the ancient world might not have accumulated all the scientific knowledge that we have today, but they knew how the world worked. They knew that when the Romans crucified a person, said person ended up dead. And they knew that when you took a dead body and you put it in a grave, it stayed there. Resurrection was not in the picture, not even for Jesus. So yeah, stranger on the road, since you asked, this is what we've been talking about. It's been a long and hard weekend, and we don't want to talk about it anymore. Can we just walk? Or you speed up, or we'll slow down. But the stranger's response is totally unexpected. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer all these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And don't you wish that you could have been there to hear this conversation? As Jesus used the whole Old Testament to explain why it was necessary for the Savior to suffer and die and rise. Don't you wish you could have been like a fly on the wall or I guess a fly buzzing along the road? Um, like what Bible sections do you think Jesus talked about? Did you remind them of Genesis chapter 3? and how the Savior was going to come crush the serpent's head, but in response, he was going to be struck in his heel. Did he remind them of Isaiah 53, where it says the Savior is going to be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, and only then is he going to see the light of life and be satisfied? Did he remind them of Psalm 16, which we read a few moments ago, 
where it's prophesied that God will not abandon the Savior to the grave, nor will he let his Holy One see decay. I mean, it's fascinating. You'd love to know what were the verses Jesus talked about, but we don't have any of that conversation recorded. But we do know the information is there. The Old Testament is full of these kinds of details. And Jesus himself had talked about these kinds of details. He had specifically said he was going to die, and then after three days, he was going to rise. We talked about this in Bible study, but when we look back as New Testament Christians, it's so clear to us that to us it looks like the disciples should have probably set their alarm for maybe 4 a.m. on Easter morning. They should have been waiting at the grave as soon as the sun came up to like see if he came out yet. Because the prophecies were so clear and Jesus' words had been so clear. But they weren't. They weren't waiting by the grave to see if he had come out yet. And the reason is because when they saw Jesus' lifeless body getting dropped down off the cross, wrapped up in grave cloths, carried, laid in a tomb, and sealed, all of their hope faded away. In the light of cold, harsh reality, all God's promises sounded like nothing more than a fairy tale. Now, have you ever felt that way? Whatever the circumstances might be, that in the face of cold, harsh reality, all God's promises just seem like a fairy tale. You know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. But when you get diagnosed with some very serious medical condition, it sure doesn't feel like it to you. You know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But when you're lying awake at night, tormented by guilt over something you've done, it sure doesn't feel like it to you. You know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him will live even though they die. But as you stand over the grave of a loved one, it sure doesn't feel like it to you. Sometimes, the cold, harsh realities of life bring out doubts and fears that we didn't even know were there. So what does Jesus do for us in moments like these? Well, he does the same thing he did for the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He opens up God's word to us. He pours out to us not one, not two, but a flood of gospel promises, one after the other. And with those promises, he pours out his Holy Spirit until our hearts are burning within us. Not burning with sudden joy and happiness, because now life is perfect, but burning with faith. Faith that God knows what he's doing. That God has always known what he's doing. That surely after everything God has done for his people, he is not going to give up on us now. Have you ever thought what an amazing blessing it is that God caused his word to be written down? Back in the old days, like the days of Abraham, um, people didn't have written scripture. God's truths and his promises were passed down through oral tradition, from parent to child, parent to child. Every little while, God would appear to somebody like Abraham and give him some information and clarify and make sure we're on the right track. But all along, God knew that we needed something better. We needed something more. And so as human civilization progressed and literacy increased, God sent his word to prophets who could write these things down. And here's how Peter describes that process. No prophecy of scripture 
came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, but rather men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's the reason why the Old Testament is the way that it is. That's the reason why these Old Testament writers wrote with uncanny details about things that weren't going to happen for a thousand years later. For example, just look at the Psalms of David. In Psalm 22, David prophesied with incredible detail about Jesus' crucifixion. This is a thousand years before it happened. David wrote, A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Incredibly specific details that were fulfilled perfectly on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. Or Psalm 16. David prophesied with incredible detail about Jesus' resurrection. My body will rest secure. You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, eternal pleasures at your right hand. Again, describing with uncanny detail what happened on Easter Sunday. Jesus' body didn't decay. He didn't stay dead. He rose. And this is just the tip of the iceberg of the entire Old Testament. I mean, through the whole Old Testament, God not only described to people who he was, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love for us, but he also described how he was going to show his love and put it into action. And it was going to be through the suffering, death, and resurrection of our perfect Savior, who would rescue us from sin and death and bring us to paradise forever. So the written scripture is an amazing thing, and Jesus used it to rebuild the faith of these disciples on the road, just like he uses it to rebuild hope in our hearts today. So anyway, at the end of this epic Bible study where Jesus is explaining all this stuff to them the entire afternoon, we wish we knew all the details, finally they reached Emmaus. It says they approached the village, and Jesus kind of went, okay, see you guys. And then they kind of went, you can't just leave after everything we talked about. Please stay with us. Ha have dinner with us. We're staying at this inn. And so it says they sat down for dinner. And while they were at the table, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight. And they said to each other, we should have known. We're not our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road. And then, like this is the understated detail of this story, in sandals, the disciples then ran seven miles in the dark back to Jerusalem. I don't know what time of night they finally got there, but they ran all the way back to Jerusalem. They found the other disciples, and they were ready to say, we saw Jesus, he, he, he's actually alive. And they got there, and the disciples are already buzzing with excitement because Peter is claiming that in the afternoon he saw Jesus too. So... Now they have some women from the morning. Now they have Peter from the afternoon. Now they have these two disciples. Could it possibly be that Jesus actually rose and is appearing to people? While they're discussing that question of could it possibly be, it says while they are talking about things, this is the moment that Jesus chose to make his big Easter night appearance. That Jesus, while they were still talking about this, stood among them and said, peace be with you. 
And like we said with the kids, this is his opening line, peace be with you. He doesn't lead off with their doubts. He doesn't lead off with their failures. He doesn't lead off with the fact that they certainly owe an apology to these women who have been telling them since the beginning of the day, we saw Jesus alive. We saw angels that said he was alive. Why did you not believe us? Jesus doesn't mention any of those things. He just says, peace be with you. He breathes his Holy Spirit into them and he sends them back out into the world. So as of now, we're two sermons into our series, our series called Witnesses. And are we picking up a theme yet? If we are, I wonder if our theme is Jesus doesn't give up on people. He didn't give up on Thomas last week. He doesn't give up on any of these disciples this week. Jesus doesn't give up on his followers. right? So they have doubts. So they have fears. So they're not understanding everything perfectly. What does Jesus do? He says, peace be with you. He breathes his Holy Spirit into them. He sends them back out into the world. And it's the same thing that Jesus does for us today on a Sunday morning just like this one. What does Jesus do for us in church? He comes to us in our doubts, in our fears, in our skepticism. He pours out to us a flood of gospel promises, not one, not two, but again and again and again. Through word and through sacrament, he pours out his Holy Spirit until our hearts are burning within us. Not with happiness because everything's perfect, but with faith. He builds us up, refreshes us, forgives us, restores us. And then he sends us back out into the world to share the incredible news of what God has done. Amen. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.